The Secrets of Star Wars is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. I am Emily Swallow, also known as the Armorer on The Mandalorian. And I'm just giving a little shout out to the Secrets of Star Wars podcast because this is the way. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Wars, episode 155. Hello there. It's a power that Jedi have that lets them control people and make things float. Impressive. Every word in that sense was wrong. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I find your lack of faith disturbing. It's against my programming to impersonate a deity. That's not how the Force works. Force is with me, and I am with the Force, and I fear nothing. Remember... The Force will be with you, always. Hey everyone, I'm Angela Ciolana, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Wars, where we talk about everything connected to that galaxy far, far away. From movies to books to TV shows and more, we're looking at the deeper themes and meanings found in Star Wars, and the fun stuff too. Today we are diving into The Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 5, entitled Chapter 21, The Pirate. So joining me today are Matey, Josh Beagley. Welcome aboard. Hello. hello. <laughs> um, and Mando has the armor. We have the artist. She is Catherine Laffrey. Hi, Catherine. Hello. <laughs> and for this episode, uh, I'm going to call him Captain John Coral. Hiya, John. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I totally didn't tell them I was going to do that, so... <laughs> um now uh we'll go to first impressions of this episode um because really i think the title just reminds us all of which episode here we're talking about so um josh let's start with you what was your first impression of this episode i i think an easy way to there was a lot of different action scenes going on and a lot of hidden meanings i guess or things you have to sort of pick up on um which i thought was really interesting to sort of look at and i think we'll get a dive into that deeper later yeah good tease uh catherine what about you uh it just felt like a big adventure it felt like it was longer than it actually was it's really right? nice mm-hmm. yeah yeah and uh captain <laughs> <laughs> uh i really liked it it was one of my favorite ones this season because of the action and um because <laughs> just the, uh, i don't know the like you said all the different scenes that um, I don't know, just <laughs> some of it made you just feel good, I guess, you know, it was just our, you know, you're yeah. just sitting there and you're like, oh, yes. All right. All right. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, and you know, kind of satisfied some of those things that, you know, kind of seem to be missing in some of the past episodes where it seemed some, or sometimes are slower, but. True, true. Yeah. Some of the episodes kind of have more of the deeper things and. This one really felt like um, John Favreau and Dave Filoni. Um, like, I think I've seen interviews with them where they talk about how they just want to kind of be kids playing with <laughs> their toys and, you know, and their action figures. And and this really felt like that to me. Um, so that was kind of my, my first impression. Um, also, just some intrigue and mystery. <laughs> um, so let's get into it, definitely. The pirate crew of Gorian Shard returns to invade Navarro, and uh, although they caused a lot of havoc, 
Um, you got to admit, there were definitely fun tidbits, um, little favorite pirate themed elements. Uh, does anybody have a favorite pirate themed element? I think for me, it was that they tweaked the show theme to kind of sound like a pirate reel. And I absolutely love that. <laughs> um, so did anybody else, uh, do you have a favorite pirate uh, stuff that happened? <laughs> oh, come on. That first mate, Ugnot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he looked just like, uh, oh my gosh. Captain Mr. Smee? Smee. Yeah, yes. or Mr. Yeah. Smee, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. that was adorable. <laughs> I was definitely getting Peter Pan vibes from him. <laughs> was like, that was kind of cool. But um, the only other thing I thought about too was like when they were on the when they were on the planet. Um, after I mean, before they were liberated, you know, they were going through like some scenes and stuff. But as you saw the people walking around, I almost was thinking some of those guys, not all of them, but there were some that you hadn't seen like since you saw like at the cantina or something, like the guy with the walrus face kind of thing, and. And it made me think about, well, maybe in the cantina, you know, it was a dangerous place. How many of those were truly pirates and, you know, and Han Solo was a smuggler. So, but it was just like, it kind of made me think back to, well, back, you know, the Star Wars, the, orig the original, to seeing those characters. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember those kind of made me think more about the cantina in, in that regard, too. But Definitely. Yeah, they've done a lot with the costuming i think with the mandalorian and making all of those different aliens come to life um i loved i loved the the drunk scene of the guys out in the main area and they were shooting at the monkeys in the tree trying to hit them. <laughs> um i thought that was just pretty funny to see them act like idiots as pirates <laughs> always do all they needed was one of them whistling for a dog it was like the pirates <laughs> of the caribbean ride <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely definitely Pirates of the Caribbean vibes and um going back to the original trilogy as John mentioned um when Grief Karga says to um Gorian Shard um you shot first or uh something like that um <laughs> it was uh originally of course ref I believe it was a reference to the original Star Wars film when Hans Han Solo shoots Greedo first. Yeah, um, because, yeah, because Gorian Shard said, is that what you call gunning down my homesman in cold blood when he let his guard down on your planet? And then Karga <laughs> says, he shot first. <laughs> yeah. And I highlighted that in my notes there. Cause, uh, <laughs> and there was another one later on with uh, Captain Tiva that brought back memories of the original trilogy too. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So lots of fun stuff there. Um and we also had, um, as we continue into the story, we arrive on this New Republic pilot hangout place and we get this huge reveal for Star Wars Rebels fans, a character that we um, previously met, Captain Tiva, uh, Carson Tiva. He reviews this hollow message from Grief Karga and discusses it with uh, none other than Star Wars Rebels character Zeb in the flesh. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> so have all of you watched Rebels? Did you know what was going on? I did not. So I, that was oh. new to me. I didn't know who he was exactly. So I just knew he uh -oh. was a commanding officer, I'm assuming, and our higher look, but Oh, our whole family was tweeting and texting and oh my gosh, it's Sam <laughs> Oh, I I saw it and at first I thought it 
wasn't him because I didn't recognize the voice and seeing him in live action was a little different. Um, but whenever I actually like went back and was like, that was that, I'm like, that's so cool. <laughs> and the other thing was that the music on that planet, like as they were sort of coming in, reminded me a lot of the Fallen Order music that like Cal's favorite song. Oh. Um, uh-huh. and that that was just like so then I was thinking instead of it being Zeb it was like some sort of like his Jedi masters who was the same species or similar mm. which kind of threw me off a bit yeah well I was I was almost like oh my gosh wait and like my brain kind of broke my brain for a bit and then um and then he kind of ends his lines by saying, good luck, you're going to need it. And that's what Zeb says all the time on Rebels. So I was like, that's got to be Zeb. That's amazing. Um, so and so we get a big throwback vibe from uh, just watching them fly into that base. Yes. And this is going way back. And I even was like pointed out to my husband because it, one of his favorite shows growing up when he was a kid was watching Black Sheep Squadron. And that's all about the Corsair pilots. Of course, another folding wing aircraft, just like an X-Wing. But um, the way that that base was laid out was very much Pacific Theater, World War II kind of vibes. Even the bar and everything. So it was really kind of neat. Neat little nod to Baba Black Sheep. Yeah, that's so cool. That's a great point. Um, I mean, it looked like a place where I would want a vacation. <laughs> So we get um, politics back into the storyline now with uh, the New Republic really getting involved and using its resources to defend its member planets. So Captain Tiva goes and requests help to defend Navarro. And um, and by the way, he is requesting it from well-known actor and comedian Tim Meadows. Um, so if he looked familiar to you, um, yeah, he is. He's one of the longest running cast members on Saturday Night Live. He is a well-known character actor. Um, so Tim Meadows, really cool to see him. He plays Colonel Tuttle here. And he's absolutely swallowed in work. Uh, and so while Captain Tiva's making his request, lo and behold, who appears? Aliyah Kane, <laughs> the former communications officer for Moff Gideon, who we have gotten to know a little bit this season. And Captain Tiva is kind of putting some pieces together about what's going on with the pirates and uh, with Navarro and everything. And and he believes that there are remnants of the empire that are growing in influence. And so there's a lot of things to discuss here. Um, so first of all, the ethical situation for the New Republic. Do you think it was right for... Colonel Tuttle to refuse the request. I feel like I don't even know this New Republic anymore, so <laughs> don't count on me. <laughs> I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around uh, what's the new canon for the New Republic. So I haven't read any of that stuff. So, well, I mean, it's kind of the what was it? Following the letter in the law, but not the intent of the law, in a sense. And I mean, you can, you know, sit behind the red tape kind of thing and say, well, they're not a member planet. We can't help them. And besides that, we have all these other member planets that need our help, blah, blah, blah. You know, like he did. And and I mean, I think, though, there should have been something the, um, to do, because if you're getting somebody coming from a Delphi base all the way in 
to show the concern, you know, at least send out somebody to see that the issue is out there versus even if they didn't go with, you know, the full like attack squadron or something, at least follow up more on it to, you know, to help out because not only are you letting the planet down, you're also letting your um, <laughs> captain down, you know, Captain Tiva down. And st- so it's like, and, you know, that that's where I um you know, and then of course, then you have Aliyah, who's kind of like the, you know, if you have an angel and devil on your shoulder, she's kind of like <laughs> the devil saying, "Hey, hey, no, it's okay to do that," you know, that kind of stuff. But it's um, but yeah, I thought they should have done something. But I think it's also easy, like I guess, from the outside too, to think of it and just be like, "Yeah, no matter what, you should always help out the person who is struggling." But then it's like they didn't have the resources and we don't we don't know what's going on with the rest of the the galaxy and if there's anything bad going on somewhere else it's worse so if there's another pirate somewhere who is like a member um yes you should help but with limited resources you can only ever do so much and he sort of has to make a weighted decision there in the moment he can't really just be like yeah, let's sit and talk about it and think about it more. It's a yes or no now kind of thing. And that kind of pressure isn't always easy. True. I do think, though, that Elia coming in and kind of making those points very strategically, as she did, um, that, you know, she was she was swaying him, you know. And I don't, I'm not exactly sure if he would have refused a request um so swiftly as you know as he did if if she hadn't been there so i don't know what you guys think of that she feels like she's definitely playing a spy game in all of this even the way she was talking it was just like you know she's like her twisting of words about uh you know being able to see the light like she's all of a sudden on the good side now. Look at me, I see the light. I was liberated, and it's like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. You, it's just like, yeah, she's just being a little too conveniently. Do you need something from the commissary, really? <laughs> <laughs> Is that how you get in on this private conversation? <laughs> yeah, the one thing, and I don't know how that works, but it's uh, like you were mentioning about able to see the light. You know, also being able to see the lights talked about later, and I don't know if there's supposed to be some kind of connection with that, mm. you know, and stuff. Um, but I think uh, <laughs> I think the big thing with seeing a lion here, too, though, is you're seeing that how, you know, <laughs> you know, is she the only imperial in there, help, you know, helping the New Republic that way, or is, you know, are there lots out there trying to influence the New Republic's, you know, the kind of decision-making or keeping on top of what they're doing so that they can report back to is kind of, well, you know, it made you wonder. Because seeing her in the first episode, you didn't know exactly what she was doing. But then now seeing her with um, Tuttle, <laughs> then it makes you see, oh, she's more influential than you thought, <laughs> at least for right. me anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my general impression of those, I guess, like transfers from the empire was that like they couldn't really get the same level of 
respect or like talk to people of higher ups kind of thing. It was more so just kind of like they're at the bottom, and that's what it seemed like based off of um the right. doctor. Mm-hmm. The, those then, episodes where we saw all of those others. Yeah, and. Then she's just in there while they're having a private conversation between, I'm assuming, two higher-ranked people, which threw me off a bit. Mm. And it was kind of like, how how can she just be in wherever she wants? <laughs> yeah, and um, it's she's. I think she's very well written. Um, in terms of her kind of being a double agent um or at least that's what i think <laughs> um that you know she the way that she insists no, i was liberated right <laughs> it's like she's supposedly gone through this deprogramming of sorts to like heal her from being you know thinking like an imperial but um you know for me i've i've been through like really difficult you know true manipulation like true bad abusive situations and just the way that they're writing this character to kind of pose herself as like a victim who is embracing her like I'm so healed and I'm in a better place now and using it to manipulate people like you know like oh I'm used to hearing that kind of talk you know (laughs) so so it's just it's really disturbing and I think that's why uh people seem to be um responding to her character in a very negative way because of because of that you know because she kind of plays innocent and um she's not at all (laughs) yeah because she got Pershing's trust a couple episodes ago and then i think maybe because of the way pershing was at the lower level and some of those other officers talked like they didn't have much you know um influence i think she's built it over time and by being the double agent and the sense, too, of, you know, oh, look, Pershing is a bad guy and I caught him and we're helping him, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So over time, you know, I think she's grown with her influence because of how she's done that. Mm. You know, or well, I think the there's one the character system. that needs to come back and he was best friends with Zeb. We need Agent Callus back. <laughs> He's been on both sides of this, and I think he could sniff out a spy. It's like, bring back Agent Callus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know if I want to, like, exactly give away why you said that, but for those who do know what, what you're talking about, yes, I agree. <laughs> um, and so so Captain Tiva um, does not get what he wants, so he has to go and kind of make his own solution here. So he, he tracks down the Mandalorians thanks to his old pal from the Rebellion, R5-D4. Um, which, by the way, since I had shared R5's backstory on a previous podcast about him fighting in the Rebellion, I was really happy to see that they brought that back up. Um, so anyway, so Tiva asks Mando for help and just kind of says, hey, you know, do with this information what you will. And then Mando kind of has this fireside chat with the covert um, to propose that they all come out of hiding and fight with him. Um, So I want to know what you guys thought about this scene. It's not the first um, buyer ritual that we've seen with the covert. And we're kind of, you know, seeing how he's 
he and Paz were kind of swaying the crowd from one opinion to the next. That was really interesting. Um, so what did you guys think about all that? Well, can I, I want to go back just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that just where um, the thing that I always find interesting with Mando and all the, is how <laughs> one good deed from, from somebody, then you always, you know, it's such a big important thing to a Mandalorian because, you know, Nobody was willing to listen to Captain Tiva, but, you know, Mando from his past experience said, this man once cut me a break and now I'm returning the favor. Right. And it's just, that's something that's, and then of course, then later on, you know, well, I guess that then brings you up to Pot, you know, Paz Vizsla and how, you know, you know, you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, this is really going downhill, down fast and, you know, this isn't going to work out. And then how he, you know, oh, but he saved my son and he did, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. And that was really impressive. But it's like, that's the thing that always keeps hitting me with the Mandalorians, though, is, you know, uh, being indebted and then returning it when called upon. There's no question of, oh, well, maybe I should. Well, you know, this isn't the best time. You know, it's always, okay, Boba Fett, I'm here, you know, okay, you know, I'm, you know, I'll go help you, you know, whatever it is, they're always out there, you know, willing to help. And it, you know, it doesn't take much as long as, you know, as long as they're indebted to that person, you know, and same with Bo-Katan and Mandalorian as well and stuff. But I guess it's because this is the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That fireside chat was really nice. It was good just to kind of see like the, it felt just like old culture, you know, gathering around the fire, especially the handing off of the the armor's mallet, hammer, whatever you want to call that thing. It's awesome. But yeah, just that handoff for that. It's like that's the authority that you get to hold to have everyone's ear. I was like, that was really cool. And then just you think about, you know, the armor. She's working with fire all the time. I mean, everything about the Mandalorians is forged in fire. Great show too, but <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely agree. I love the the talking stick of the hammer, <laughs> and a little bit with that idea of them being like, "I'm indebted to this person." Those people were also bad to them at once. Like, grief cargo was supposedly in charge of like them having to leave their first um covert, and then they're like. No, that wasn't him. That was Moff Gideon. And it's not his fault. And so, and then like he hated the man, Paz hated the Mandalorian. And then now they're best friends. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of this love-hate relationship, I guess, that, that, that we're seeing is someone does something bad, but then they're making up for it. And, or they're having this change of heart and, also, you sort of heard whenever Pause was talking of a lot of like murmurs and stuff in the background, but then as soon as he said this is the way, they all just focused. <laughs> they they all unanimously were like, "Yes, we have to help." Then, mm-hmm. and then the armor got the final decision too, which was interesting. Still, I think how she's still sort of seen as the leader of their group. She reminded me of the judges in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Or she has that authority to kind of put him in check. We need to go a different direction or this is where we should be moving. And it's like she says it and we do it. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
And as far as Paz Fisla goes, um, when he picked up the mic, so to speak, <laughs> I was just like, oh, here we go. You know, because I call him the drama king. Whenever he comes on screen, I say to my husband, that guy's a drama king right there. <laughs> Um, I mean, he's got his big, huge gun, you know, and he's just, <laughs> he doesn't do anything quietly <laughs> or halfway. Um, but that that's what makes him a really memorable character. So, um, <laughs> so when he says, it's because we're Mandalorians, that's why we're going to do it. It was like, yeah, you know, he was really, I think, leading, helped to lead the charge. Um, and, and then we see Bo-Katan leading the battle um essentially for the liberation of Navarro um and that was really cool to see her you know we already saw her leading a squad you know to save um the the youngling um and or the what do you call it in Mandalorian terms that's a that's a Jedi term oh foundling was he a foundling yeah I guess the um yeah the the son of Paz um but now we're seeing Bo in this even bigger, you know, um, real, you know, life uh, battle. Um, and it was very cool. It was a really fun battle sequence. Um, does anybody have a favorite moment? Once again, we have an amazing sequence. We've got to talk about the cool moments. Well, I mean, for me, it, I don't know. It, there were so many of them. It seemed like to me, because my favorite part, I mean, well, I had two mainly, but the first part was, it's just when he shows up in the sky by himself and, you know, everybody looks up and sees him flying by and you hear the, the music, the, you know, few pieces of notes or whatever that, you know, announces his presence. And that's what I've liked in the prior episodes, like when they, when he fought the pirates the first time in the asteroid field and stuff, it's like, whenever it's quiet, <laughs> you know, you're in trouble, you know, or something. But then when he came around and made that first pass at the, the Corsair, that was really cool because, it was, you know, not, you know, not only did he show up, but then, you know, starting it. And then, of course, later on when, <laughs> when they're chasing uh, Bo-Katan and, and Vane's like, oh, look out, he's above us no, look out, he's below us, you know, and it's just like, that was really, I don't know, but it was just, I just really like how they write him as a pilot and stuff too, his calmness, and he's just like mm. out there, and it's like pilots I've known, you know, it's like when you talk to them and you hear them talk about flying and stuff, it's like, oh, wow, it really, you know, it's like how calm they are compared to what I would be thinking, you know, <laughs> of everything they've got to be thinking about and doing with all those people on the plane, all that kind of stuff, but. It's um, but I like how he's just calm and you know, matter of fact, and you know he's going to get the job done. But and that drop sequence, watching the Mandalorians drop in on the town, that was it was like okay, so this is what they were doing when they rescued Din. You know that same sort of drop in Ooh. tactic. It was really neat. I loved seeing Bo-Katan just being in charge, especially knowing like all the battles and all the things she's been in charge of in the past. It's like, yeah, it makes sense that she needs to lead this charge. Yeah, I loved seeing their coordination whenever they were on the ground, too, compared to just stormtroopers who stand in a line and just miss everything. Um, <laughs> they actually had, like, a plan. They were in their groups. They knew what they were doing, just sort of taking the streets one by one, and I thought that was cool. And then for the 
whole air dogfight going on. Um, I love the trench run, basically, of the three ships behind. And it was just very much a new hope. You're in the trench. Darth Vader is behind you. And then, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I definitely agree. And I would have to say my favorite moment was when the armor came in <laughs> and mm-hmm. just strutted right in and started taking people out <laughs> one by one. Um, and it kind of showed just how, uh, I guess, um, confident, overly confident the pirates were <laughs> that they didn't have anybody uh, keeping watch or anything. Um, but I always love to see the armor in action. Definitely. I did like it too. And they found the, uh, when they got the help from those little creatures in the tree for the ambush, <laughs> you guys are they're pointing around the corner and he's like, okay, we might have an ambush here. <laughs> it's like, you know, after, you know, minutes earlier when they're shooting, you know, the pirates were shooting at him like, <laughs> and stuff. So I thought that was a nice little touch, but. Yeah, the quacky and monkey things. Monkey, yeah, monkey lizard? Lizards, yes. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. Yeah, too fun. Oh, all right. Well, yes. Yeah, so we uh, we end up with a victory and sad to see Captain Gorian Shard, uh, you know, meet his end because I just love his character design. I really like the ship. I think he was so much fun. I'm sad that he's gone. <laughs> mm-hmm. I hope we get more stories about him. And uh, so Grief Karga bestows the Mandalorians with a large tract of land on Navarro. As their home. And um, Dom Bettinelli, our SQPN CEO, he actually pointed out on Slack that uh, their tract of land is kind of a tribute to the original uh, Boba Fett, the first Mandalorian actor to appear in canon, um, because their tract of land is from the Lava Flats all the way to Bullock Canyon. And of course, that actor was Jeremy Bullock. So really cool. Um, so. Uh, now that we have the Mandalorians on a uh, plot of land out in the open, they seem to be getting together, making plans, doing things, shaking things up. How do you expect them to to settle down? How much of a settlement do you think we'll actually see on Navarro from the Mandalorians? What do you think? Oh, I think that all depends on what happens next. <laughs> it's going to be tough. I mean... Had that that talk that the armorer had with Bo-Katan that could make or break how settled they are. It's interesting, though, that it was Din that brought up wanting our children to play in the sun. It's like he had so many experiences out and about with Grogu that I think he probably knows and has seen enough family life that he's like, we really need this kind of feeling for the kids. Yeah, because he didn't grow up that way. Right? Yeah. And- I think I sort of agree with that idea of we have to wait and see with whether or not more are going to come or not. Um, but I don't know, because it seems like they've only really known how to sort of live in a cave and be in solitude. And they don't know how to go out, sort of like live in a normal society. It's been how long, I guess? They know how to stick to themselves and them now interacting with a town and being a part of it is going to be an interesting situation to happen. That was a great way to make new friends too. just jump in and save the town. Hey, we love you. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, they are the kid that saves uh, the other kid from the bully, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, John, you have any thoughts on what we're going to see from from the Mandalorians on Navarro? I, yeah, I'm I'm not sure either because it's like I thought, oh, this is great. They're going to have this long, <laughs> you know, build this big town or you know, or home for themselves, and then you know, moments later, it's like it's time to go back to Mandalore. It's like really, you know, or whatever it might be. But it's kind of so. I mean, I can see them. I don't know. It's just, or you know, you know. Would there be some people that would be there and some that would want Mandalore? I mean, that would be another thing, too. It's because when we've seen with Mandalore, I don't know, you know, right now it seems like they got a better situation mm-hmm. and until they can figure that out more. But I, I mean, I guess it would be for for at least somewhat of a while, but um, I don't know. It sounds like the way, but yeah, it, I was a little <laughs> surprised by how. It goes out uh, of the conversation when after that, soon after that, I guess. Is. Right. That we're now it's time to take, uh, retake Mandalore. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was interesting. Um, and I wasn't sure if the armor was referring to the planets, um, and right. or the people, you know, of Mandalore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that's remains to be seen. Um, now with, Bo's character, she's she's part of this whole situation as well. And and we see her meeting with the armor, um, who talks about being at the Great Forge of Mandalore. Um and by the way, who else panicked when the armor told Bo to remove her helmet? I was excited. I was like, <laughs> Yes, it's happening. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I was kind of wondering. It was like well, I was a little nervous because I was thinking, is this a power struggle? And then it's going to go south or, you know, you know, you could see the armor because in the past you've seen the armor has, um, well, you can't see it other than, you know, little, you know, motions and stuff. But, you know, you can tell she's thinking about stuff and it's like, is she thinking everything that Bo's telling her is good or is she having concerns about it? But I think, though, over time you've seen the trust build between her and Bo-Katan, so. But at, at first, I did have some nervousness about that with the, you know, I thought, oh, everything's going great. And now. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was very thrown off, too. And then she said, like, do you respect this forge? And I was really thrown off by that part, too, because then I was like, is she going to, like, fix her helmet, give her some new tech in there or something like that? I didn't I just didn't know what to expect. And then and then we got the rest of the story there. It's like rewatching it a second time. I really was like, okay, now I know why it didn't throw me off too much. Because the armor kept talking about the forged sounds. And she starts talking in a way where she understands the similarities among all Mandalorians. So I think the armor was talking herself through understanding that what she thinks as you know, the ultimate creed that they've been living out might not be the fullness of what it means to be a Mandalore. And I think as she started reminiscing about the the forge on Mandalore itself and the Great Forge and all that stuff, that it was like she was starting to see that, okay, what is, what is it that connects us? And it's, I think it was like, not that we don't take our helmets off. It was more about, you know, that deep meaning of the forge. And again, that ties back into that whole fire. It's that 
that burning drive within the Mandalorians. And it was a neat connection, too, because, like you were saying, it's because of the, um, in those prior episodes, Bo-Katan would per- periodically bring up the past and say, oh, yeah, I remember how this used to look, or I remember doing these things, whether it was to Grogu or whoever. And it's like, and then talking to um, the armor, you saw the softer side of the armor, I think, finally, you know, with that, where she, you know, remembered back to the the Thor, the, the song of a hundred hammers or whatever it was and stuff like that. And you could see, but <laughs> that was, so that was kind of neat. I mean, you can see how those two are connecting a lot more too. That was, which was nice. Yeah. I think we were really lucky that um, the armor said, you know, Bo has, has walked both worlds and she can unite us. Um, and that it wasn't Colonel Tuttle who said, Aliyah Kane has walked both worlds and she can <laughs> unite. Because, because we're kind of seeing the same situation almost, but reversed, right? Like earlier we had talked about how the New Republic in, in their situation in this episode is like, you know, the letter of the law, right? And And here the armor is choosing to see what unites all Mandalorians and not necessarily looking at the letter of the law as she has, you know, been um, taught it, you know, as she even says, I was taught, right, that the Mississaur was just in legends, but you've seen it. And so it's almost like that the armor has been willing to kind of open, open her perspective, open her mindset. And that's really a almost a miraculous thing, you know, when someone is able to do that. Um, and so that that really that struck me. Um, uh, whenever you also talk about the mythosaur, then and the armor was talking about it, I was thinking more of Din and the battle between, I guess, the prophecy of the mythosaur. And the Darksaber uniting the Mandalorians. I mean, that's been a huge theme through the Clone Wars, the Rebels, that whoever wields it rules Mandalore. And now we're told of a separate prophecy and sort of seeing them now be put against each other with two different claims to rule Mandalore and sort of right. seeing where that, that'll go. Yeah, she didn't the, she say the Mythosaur is bringing a new age? Right. The next ruler yeah. of Mandalore will like ride a mythos, ride in on a mythosaur, kind of, or something like that. It was really interesting when Bo walked out without her helmet on, mm-hmm. and just to see her look to Vizsla, who looked to Din, as if it was like, okay, now we got to settle the saber. <laughs> oh, I took that. I took that look. So Paz looks at at Din, and to me, he almost was saying, like, is this okay? You know, like, he was looking at Din, like, is it okay that that the ladies are <laughs> are proposing this new <laughs> situation? Because um, it just, it it's like, I mean, even in the world that we live in, in reality, you know, outside of the show, um, there's there's a lot of division, and there's almost you know, there's this, um, 
Paz Vizsla arguing with the mandal, the uh, armor, like, but she shows her face, right? So he's almost like asking, well, how can she be faithful if she's, you know, she's doing this thing that flies in the face of what you've taught us and what we've been, you know, doing for so long. Um, but the armor is, again, she's finding the thing that is uniting all of them. So it's like, Paz is, to me, he represents kind of like, the suspicions that we may have of people who live differently from us. And we, we have to look to others in our community that we trust to be like, what, what do I make of this? You know, is this, is this okay? And so it, it kind of, it reminded me of, you know, in a real life church situation or other community situation where we have to look to each other um, and kind of, try to discern, I guess you could say, discernment. Um, part of the discernment process, as we say in the Catholic Church, is, is yeah, prayer and, and looking to what you've been taught and then also um, counsel as well from, from wise people. And so um, that all is just kind of to say that, you know, when we are trying to work together for the common good, you know, sometimes we'll we'll come across people who have very different opinions of things and and we have to it seems like this show is saying you know we have to find common ground at first you know and and try to discern a, a path forward so well like as you're mentioning that too um i was thinking about too where well when when they were saying you know she walks both you know um what was it has walked both, both worlds. worlds and you are the only one and you, you can unite us you know, I was thinking about in the Bible, all the, at least in the New Testament, you know, of course, Jesus walked both worlds as a divine and as human. But then, but I think it's more like a St. Paul, because he was a Roman and a Jew and then a Christian. And he had his, he had his moment where nobody knew that he had seen Christ, you know, with the road to Damascus and every, you know, and he was like, is this what I really saw? And this is the voice I heard and stuff. And in a sense, like Bo-Katan is saying, hey, she sees the mythosaur and Din didn't see it um, and stuff. And then and then later on, you know, when they're talking about, you know, what <laughs> what's the proper way to be a Christian? And you have St. Peter saying, no, you have to follow certain Jewish customs. And St. Paul saying, no, the Gentile, and you have to follow these customs. It's kind of like Paz looking over at the Mandalorian and like, okay, what do we do? <laughs> you know, and they're trying to come to like a, you know, a happy medium, I guess, or, you know, but I just, but that's what I was thinking about more when, with some of the stuff as it was going on. That's a great tie-in. Nice. Absolutely. I had one cute moment rewatching it and I always have to look in on uh, Grogu's little expressions and just imagining what would he be saying or thinking? And because of all the little mommy daddy moments with uh, Bo and Din and Grogu lately, I was just like, oh, daddy, look, mommy's so pretty with her helmet off. <laughs> <laughs> and if you watch it again and look at that little face, you can almost see him thinking it. <laughs> I think that's nice to bring up, too, because I've seen that a lot more in this season of Grogu's ability to like express himself and communicate more and do more which i've loved seeing and 
I don't know. It starts to add in that idea that he's going to start talking hopefully soon. I would love to hear that. And and I was just like a little kid to see him grow up a bit more. <laughs> and yeah. It's like, like with my little sisters, we just couldn't wait for her to start walking and talking. And you just you just want her to get there. So you're doing everything to get him there. That's so true. Yeah. And and it it helps us to have a sense that even though he is really, really old, Mm-hmm. that he is actually growing and developing, you know, as a person. Um, so, you know, we, we can't see, we can't see inside his thoughts like Ahsoka can, <laughs> and we can't read his mind all the time, but we can, yeah, we can start to understand that he is learning and he is, you know, um, kind of coming into his own as far as um, establishing those relationships and, yeah, like Catherine said, a mom and dad kind of relationship. <laughs> and that's something that's been talked about. I mean, because between Paz Wisla now to, you know, saying that's my son, you know, in the prior episode, because we've gotten to the, or I've gotten to the point of in the first ones, oh, he's a foundling. He's a, you know, he's in your charge. It's, you know, it's it, it was more like a guardianship versus a parent relation, you know, kind of thing. And, and now you hear it hearing the Mandalorians refer to the the children as their children and and, you know, sons or whatever you know, and stuff is I think making a little more uh more connection to it's kinda neat to see the softer side of <laughs> these guys. Yeah. And um a family is a family is where we get uh that cooperation that I think we're gonna be seeing hopefully with with Din and Bo. Um, because I know, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, Din has the, the Darksaber and Bo has the Mythosaur on her side. So who's going to actually rule Mandalore? Um, does this create a conflict? And I think the way that we are being led to believe this is going in, uh, you know, ideally <laughs> is, is that there will be some kind of cooperation, um, between the two of them possibly. Or um, I don't know, maybe maybe they will break the the rules of the dark saber, or possibly um, will have it on a technicality that Bo actually used the dark saber when she was freeing uh, Din, and so she was technically the last one to use it. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Are we going to see? Din actually, you know, using the authority of the Darksaber or what's what's the Darksaber going to be? What's the role going to be in all this? I, I see it as becoming the conflict. Um, I mean, even with that small little interaction between Paz and Din, I almost saw that as he respects him for having the Darksaber and having the traditions and being walking the way. And compared to Bo, who's currently not doing anything that they've been taught and how things are going. He's looking to him for guidance instead of from the armor or from anyone else. He's sort of seen as that leader figure within the group without actually being it. And I think throughout the rest of this season, we'll start seeing with the more tribes coming in as who really is leading and who's just being there. See, I was wondering, it's like, it seemed to me that when the armorer was talking, you know, when the Mandalorian was talking to the armorer about Bo-Katan earlier, 
And he, she was saying, well, she believes, or her, you know, tribe or belief was uh, with the dark saber and the and her royalty, you know, or whatever the royal background. And I wasn't sure if the children of the watch were as strong in the dark saber. I mean, you know, I know Paz was uh, challenged him for it, but was that because he was an apostate and he's, you know, a true Mandalorian should have it, or was it because, you know, I didn't know that, so it was. So I know some. So I didn't know if some would be coming in saying, "Let's be ruled by the dark," you know, the person in charge of the dark saber, or if there's other sects that are like, "No, we don't really uh, follow that." You know, I don't know how that. So and having not watched all the other <laughs> series, I don't know mm-hmm. if they talk about all that stuff or and stuff. But all I know is what I don't want to see. I don't want to see some huge heroic sacrifice over the dark saber. <laughs> <laughs> we won't even get into the reasons why. That's another show for another time. <laughs> what would a heroic sacrifice for it be? Just dying so someone else can have the saber? That's what I yeah. was thinking, but I didn't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I, I was thinking about it. I'm like... I, the only time that it's really been given up like that is Sabine just handing it over, and that didn't end well last time. So no, no. that's why I put heroic in there. It's not just yeah. about handing it over. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, if if I I think for all of you that have not watched Rebels, I would suggest that you just look up online which um, episodes uh, of Rebels are related to the dark saber and watch those. Because, I mean, I'm sure they'll they'll take care of you in terms of, you know, making sure you can follow everything and, you know, catching you up if you need to know something. But I just think having all the back story um, with what has happened in the past with Bo and the Darksaber and how the Darksaber has influenced the Mandalorians in the past um, will kind of enrich your experience of maybe what we're going to see in the future, especially because we know that Moff Gideon was a big fan of the Darksaber. <laughs> and it seems like he's still out there. He's still doing stuff. Um, and so that's what we see at the end of this episode is that the ship that was carrying him um, was apparently um, just attacked and there he's not there. <laughs> and and we learn that there's also Beskar. Um, on the ship where he's been liberated uh, from. And so so we know that Bo is supposed to go unite all the tribes of Mandalore. Um, does that include these people who seem to have liberated Moff Gideon? Who are these people? What's going on with that? Does, does anyone have theories about um, who liberated Moff Gideon and, and what Moff Gideon is up to? Was it Beskar armor found in there, or was it just Beskar in general? Because just that's Beskar. where that's what I was confused about. Because I mean, Mando got Beskar from the random bounty dude, so I I feel like it could be anything. Because it, it just... said it said it was a fragment of Beskar alloy. So mm-hmm. and it looked like it was in a blast burn, mm-hmm. right? Like the area of the ship looked burnt and then there was a little glint of beskar in there so was it like one of those little what do they call them the birds the little mm-hmm, the whistling sting, birds whistling birds there we go you know was it one of their little you know 
armaments of some kind that was used or I don't know. I still want to know the story of how Gideon got the dark saber. Do we mm. know that fully yet? No, I, I don't, don't believe think so. so. Just that he had it. Um, and you know, it I think it's implied that so they tell us that um the the empire basically destroyed Mandalore um and you know, made sure that it was uninhabitable um and that they they did raid um Mandalore of its resources. So it's possible that during that attack um that Moff Gideon or someone in the empire ended up, you know, getting the dark saber at that time. Um but you know so that, that makes me think Bo wasn't carrying it around anymore. I don't get maybe. it. Maybe. <laughs> you know. Like she just had it on display and was off hanging out with her friends. I don't that know. Sounds that sounds like was... mall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the thing I'm wondering is with the earlier on with the, the pirate, you know, they talked about Captain Tiva's trying to put pieces together and he's thinking, is that related to all this Moff Gideon stuff? And, you know, a couple episodes ago, you know, I was bringing up the revenge idea on Bo-Katan and on Dr. Pershing. And I'm like, would this be another attack of revenge where they let, you know, give the pirates the go ahead to do it, you know, because Gar <laughs> uh, Kree got, you know, ended up going against, you know, Moff Gideon and, you know, like, you know, Bo-Katan and, and everybody else. Or, you know, and then is this really Mandalorians that were you know, extracting him or is it a setup for them, you know, make him look like Mandalorians because they want to keep it hidden that the Imperials are out there and growing and stuff. And that's what kind of, so it's like, like my thought is maybe they just found Mandalorian armor, made the, you know, extraction. And then that's how it ended up, you know, so that they would cover their tracks. Perhaps. I don't know. That was, <laughs> I don't but. Because I can't see, unless the only reason why a Mandalorian would seem to want Moff Gideon would be to <laughs> give him their own justice, I guess, of some sort. I mean, I can't see them teaming up with him for what he's done to Mandalore and stuff. So, Yeah, um, I I don't know. I think there's a whole lot of possibilities with this. Um, and, you know, I think um, it is possible that there are some other Mandalorians out there um that are not going to be known to the new republic um but now that the covert of dinjarin has come out into the light they will probably be um i guess targeted you know for um crimes against the, the new republic right um liberating a, an enemy of the new republic um that's that's definitely a possibility um and so may i from that you could even imagine you know they maybe they're like hey din this was a terrible idea coming out into the light look at what you know look at what's happened to us um i don't know i <laughs> there's it's it's really going to be interesting to see to see what's hap what's happened here um but i think that alaya has definitely been trying to keep down Navarro for a reason. 
Um, and that Moff Gideon must have something that he wants from Navarro or I don't know, <laughs> so, something like that. Yeah, outline of is like you were talking about the nervousness with the armor and the the helmet with Bo Katan. It's like I've been looking back at these episodes and I'm thinking, boy, things are going relatively smoothly. You know, it's like <laughs> for the Mandalorian and stuff, and it's it makes. And then when you see the way Elia Kane was looking at Captain Tiva, and then you see you know this, and then like you said, that was my other concern. It's like yeah, you know, once they're in the light. And if they think the Mandalorians are behind these things, well, let's find the ones that are the easiest to find, you know, or right. go for them. And so it's like, I don't know, I, I feel a little uneasy as we come into these last few episodes of the season that, you know, we're going to find, because as we find out more about, you know, Moff Gideon and stuff, you know, somewhere we have to see them come into the light more as well and what their plans are. Yeah. So any final thoughts, guys, on on what you think is coming or anything else about this episode that we missed? Well, one other thing that kind of answers a question to, oh my gosh, I forget who brought it up in our last uh, show. Um, we were talking about how in the world does the uh, planet that the group was on Navarro? able to support. No, not Navarro. Uh, the one before that. The covert. Yeah, yeah. Planet. Well, you know. when they were there, we were talking about how is it possible that that planet can support an animal as big as the mm. crocodile, turtle, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. that thing. And it was nice because the X-Wing flyover answered that question, that the lakes are a lot bigger than that one that we see and they're all interconnected. So I was like, hey, there's the answer. There's enough room for the giant crocodile turtle. <laughs> <laughs> Good catch. I'll tell you one, actually, as you mentioned that too, what disturbed me a little bit was how easy you could find the covert if you just have an <laughs> astromech droid sitting there. And it's like, you know, because I never would have thought about that, but it's like, you know, that makes you an easy target if you can just communicate with him. I don't know if he like sent out some messages or they communicate or how, whatever they did, but it didn't seem it was too hard for Captain Tiva to find him. Okay, well, that is all uh, for us. What about all of you out there? What did you catch that we didn't catch? Um, and do you have any other feedback with Star Wars questions, any Star Wars questions or comments? Um, let us know. You can email us at sqpn.com. That's starwars at sqpn.com. Or find StarQuest on Facebook, facebook.com slash starquestmedia. Leave a comment there or simply tweet us at sqpn. And be sure to share the podcast on social media. Before we move on, we'd like to take a brief moment to recognize and thank the people that make this podcast possible, our patrons. And that is including Daniel K, Don T, Joe B, Monica V, and Adam N. Thank you all so much. You too can help StarQuest continue our mission by becoming a patron at sqpn.com slash give. Another way that you can help is by letting people know um, who are watching The Mandalorian about the show. So you can um, tell them to subscribe to Secrets of Star Wars in any of their favorite podcast apps. You can also tell them that they can find it on the SQPN YouTube channel. And uh, previous episodes of our show can be found at sqpn.com slash Star Wars. 
All right. So uh, that's it for us. Next week, we'll be taking a look at chapter 22 of The Mandalorian. And uh, until next time, Josh Beakley, thank you for joining in The Secrets of Star Wars. Always happy to join. Catherine Laffrey, thank you as well. Thank you. This is fun. And Captain John Coral, <laughs> thanks for sailing with us once again. Thank you. I had a great time. And I am the one in the middle, the Bendu, Angela Ciolana. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Wars on StarQuest. Here's another podcast on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash secrets.